everybody, I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're talking Preacher. Yeah, we're looking at Preacher issues 22 through 24. Finally coming to the end of the Masada story arc, which started, that seems like so long ago... Yeah, this is about the fifth issue of Jesse trying to rescue Cassidy from Masada, which follows directly on the San Francisco story arc, in which Cassidy had basically told the Grail that he was Jesse Custer, so they would take him instead of Tulip. Yeah, and there was a lot of table setting in the past three issues, way more than we can really cover. Let's try to do it real fast. So, Hairstar, he's a member of the Grail who also has a conspiracy going within the Grail. He wants Jesse Custer to be the Messiah rather than Jesus' actual descendant. Right. Now, Jesse and Tulip are riding to the rescue, except that Tulip is super competent and really good to have along on a thing like this, but Jesse is really struggling not to be kind of a misogynist. Yeah, well, he just can't stand the thought of her getting hurt, and he also can't help himself from being a big, macho, protective male. Yeah, so he left her behind in a hotel in France. It was a dick move. Speaking of a dick move, Star has hired a guy named... (laughs) Is it it Frankie No Dick or No Dick Frankie? (laughs) It's the eunuch. The eunuch, right. Frankie the eunuch. To torture Cassidy, which he is doing by shooting him repeatedly with a 30 yard rifle. Meanwhile, the man who Harristar fears most in the world, Allfather Aranique, has arrived in Masada. Destroying the plane on the way. Yeah. But destroying the plane is perhaps strong. He broke the landing here, because he's a very heavy man. He seems to know what Harristar is up to, maybe? Right. In any case, he has his own reasons for wanting Jesse Custer... And Hairstar does not know what those are. Neither do we. That's true. And Jesse stopped for directions in France and ended up starting a bar fight over nuclear weapons. Yeah, that part is not going to come back so much. That's just a diversion? (laughs) Yeah. But uh, if you want to hear more about that, dear listeners, please refer to our last Preacher episode. Well, that brings us to Preacher number 22, Iron in the Blood. This issue was written by Garth Ennis and features art by Steve Dillon. And we have a cover by Glenn Fabry. This is probably my favorite Preacher cover so far. It shows a pair of knives stuck in a table with the faces of Star and Jesse facing off reflected in them. Yeah, these knives are way cooler looking than the knives that we will see in the issue. But this is actually a thing that happens in the issue. There will be two knives stuck in a table. Yeah, this is a super dramatic layout. It really sets up the opposition between the two characters, and check out the way that Star's tie is reflected in the far side of the knife, because that's the way it would really reflect. That's pretty nifty. Okay, so as we open the issue, Jesse is arriving at Masada, finally. Jesus Christ, where preachers dare, he tells himself, as he stands in an ominous sunset, or maybe it's a sunrise, and lights a cigarette. Turn the page, and we get a big reveal of the facility at Masada up on the cliffside. We've been waiting for this for five issues, and we get a big dramatic moment here. Yep, and this is also our title page, Iron in the Blood, it reads. Yeah, now, 
Down in the bowels of Masada, Frankie the Eunuch is torturing Cassidy when he gets orders from Star to keep him alive. Yes, and as he has been for the past few issues, he's torturing Cassidy by shooting him repeatedly with an Enfield semi-automatic rifle. Right, Cassidy's a vampire. Uh, it may have come up before in the series. He's basically... Actually, it's, to... it's not a semi-automatic rifle. I think it's bolt action. Is that what he said? I don't remember. <laughs> now we have to check the details, because he clearly described the rifle in the previous issue. But Cassidy being a vampire, he can't really be killed by bullets, but he can basically be shot to pieces. And after several failed attempts to autopsy him, Star has decided to have him tortured for his temerity in not dying. He does say it's bolt action. Yeah, so Star calls down to check if Cassidy is still alive, and in order to check, Frankie shoots him. Frankie says that he was going to give him an hour or two off, because if he keeps going like he has been, there ain't going to be nothing left to shoot at. But one would think, like, Cassidy could be broken down into pretty small pieces and still be alive, right? Since bullets can't kill a vampire. Right. And yet he's intact enough to scream. Well... That's a horrifying thought. <laughs> it just found it a little confusing. Meanwhile, Star's right-hand man, Marseille, turns up with a report. It turns out there's an old freighter that's beached nearby. Yeah, now I love the way that this develops throughout the issue. Just, we get little hints that the Saint of Killers has arrived in Masada without anybody paying it too much notice until we actually on see him. Yeah, and so that sort of gives it away. That's what this ship business is. We saw in the previous issue that he had hijacked the ship and was on his way to Europe in pursuit of Jesse. Right. Custer won't be coming on a fucking banana boat. Let's just concentrate on staying alive until his arrival, shall we? God, that monster sickens me. Look at him. What do you suppose he's thinking about? Talking about Allfather Dieronique. His favorite subjects, I'd imagine. Mass murder and big pies. So Jesse gets picked up by a patrol on his way into Masada. Right, even though the call from Marseille was not actually about Jesse. On the last page they hadn't found him yet, but now they have. They try to stop him on his way in, and it doesn't really work. So I guess you boys can understand me, huh? So? And as we know, that means Jesse can control them. Yeah, he flicks his cigarette away badassly, and we are back inside the base. And the one survivor of the encounter is detailing how Jesse ordered one of the men to turn his machine gun on all the others. Yeah, this is a pretty ruthless move for Jesse. Yeah, he killed a bunch of Grail guys. Sort of in cold blood? Yeah, more or less to, as he'll explain in a moment, to show Daronique that he's serious. Yeah. And this is one of my favorite lines here. Jesse, I want to point out that we have been close up on the one survivor, so we haven't seen the rest of the scene at this point. And then we sort of get a pan back in the final panel of the page, revealing that Jesse is there. Yeah, and he breaks into the soldier's story to say... So then I told this fella to take me to the senior cocksucker in the vicinity. I think I took a picture of that panel the first time that... <laughs> yeah, you sent me that panel the first time you read it. So Jesse makes some pretty blunt demands of Allfather Daronique. 
he wants a safe passage out for him and Cassidy, and a private word with Hair Star. His ass in the toe of my boot got kind of a rendezvous coming. So I guess he's picking up French a little bit. <laughs> they trade threats for a little while. Derenique establishes that if Jesse makes any move to use the word of God on him, Cassidy will be killed. Man of God, you are out of your depth. Force my men to disarm, move against me, and a signal will be given. Can you tell what it is, or who will give it, or who is awaiting it? No. But as soon as it is given, your friend will die. Oh, he will, huh? Mind telling me how? For the sake of argument, hanging. Hang or cast. That's a good one. The sun rises in six hours, Reverend. We can ensure he'll be there to see it. Yeah, now, Derenique does not have a lot of details on the Cassidy situation. He doesn't know the most salient point that Cassidy is a vampire, and in fact, Star has told him previously that Cassidy's dead. Right, so Star actually realizes at this moment that since Derenique knows Cassidy is alive, he's kind of fucked. Yeah. And Derenique, of course, has no idea how to kill Cassidy, but Star does, and he brings that threat to bear in this situation. Incidentally, he mentions Soto Voce to Marseille, how he knows how to kill Cassidy. He questioned the inhabitant of Cell 99 for the information last night. Now, we've seen this cell a couple of times. There's a mysterious prisoner there that has been providing Star with information, and we know that Derenique knows nothing about this. Right. We also pretty much know who's in it. We can guess. The reveal is coming up, I think, at the end of this issue. It's not quite that soon, but it's coming up fast. But by the time it happens, it'll be pretty much just a formality. So, whispering to Marseille, Hairstar says, I am now exactly where the fat fuck wants me. Think, Marseille. Whatever it takes. I have to talk to Jesse Custer now. Talking to Jesse Custer sounds so fun, however, that Derenique is going to do so for the better part of a page. At the end of every day, every leader of every nation makes a telephone call. They dial a number I have given them, and when I answer, they simply say, Thank you. That seems like it would take a lot of time. Yeah, really. <laughs> That's really got to be most of your day. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's what, 285 countries? Right, yeah. And we assume that the Grail has put every... Every single head of state in charge? Right, well, that's what he's, that's what he's telling us he's done. Man, I, I didn't even have to make 250 phone calls a day back in uh, my old marketing job. Yeah, it seems like he has to be delegating some of those calls. Lower your guns, lower your guns. He is no threat. He only thought he was. So, yeah, he talks about sort of what the grail is, which we already know. I don't know if Custer knows but it's cool dialogue anyway. And then he talks about how he's in charge of every nation. <laughs> right. Now, Derenique's bragging goes on to come to the conclusion that he has already decided basically to torture Jesse to death. I want to tear that pride away from you. I want you to know the truth that will render it utterly worthless. Truth that I will tell you. I want to see you wither before I see you die. Yeah, now I wonder how apt do you think this is as a description of Jesse's character? Dierenique's assertion that he's a creature who lives on pride. The pride is your lifeblood, man of God. It burns in your heart like a torch held high. With it you stand tall, without it you wither. Yeah. 
He's a pretty proud character, but I think he's got a core of self-determination that can carry him through humiliations and slings and arrows. Incidentally, I really like how Dierenique always calls him Man of God. So Dierenique mentions the Vigilance Order that he's placed on Jesse, which we've heard about a bunch of times and we've never heard the reason why. But came the day I ordered a search of a plantation on the border of Louisiana and Texas, where a grand old colonial family had settled, and everything changed. He goes on to explain the history of that family, the Langell family. Now we have seen this, we have heard this story before. We were talking about Jesse's family. Right. Grandma is just one in a long line of sons of bitches, and the men were always priests. The Langell's latest matriarch told me she had a grandson called Jesse, that he had grown up to be a preacher, that he had defied her many times, but she had brought him home to stay for good. And then I never heard from her again. You killed her, Custer. You killed my Aunt Marie. Yeah, so this is the, the new news, which is that the Langells are split from a larger clan called the Aranique. Now, did this seem like too much coincidence to you? Hmm. We basically learn that the two main families of some bitches in the Preacher universe are one family. <laughs> right, exactly. It's an awfully convenient reason for Dierenique to, to hate Jesse before he really becomes involved with the Grail. Right, and there's a sort of cinematic logic to the fact that basically there's an evil French guy, and it turns out, of course, he comes from the evil French family that we already know about. <laughs> right. Well, so Jesse cops to killing Grandma, which he did. He, uh, let's see, sort of set her house on fire, and then she was launched out of it by an exploding oxygen tank? Yep, that's the way it happened. I sent that bitch to hell, and I hope she's burning still. And that's why I must see you dead. For the sake of blood. Blood that runs in me and ran in her. Blood that links even you and me across an ocean down the centuries. Blood passed to you by your mother. Blood that the water in your father's veins could not dilute. And you really don't want to insult Jesse's father. My mother was Christina Langell, the only good woman to come out of a family of scum. My father was Private John Custer, United States Marine Corps, and the only thing ran in his veins was iron. You say one more word to dishonor their memory, you worthless son of a bitch, and I will kill you now, no matter what the cost. Yeah, so things are moving right along, but I wanted to stop and call out that dialogue as being just a really great page. Yeah, the art on these two pages is really good, too. We got Grandma sort of looming over a hateful-looking Jesse in the first panel as he remembers her, and then we've got his really determined face as he's threatening Dierenique in the next page. Yeah, his face morphs from sort of defeat after they had threatened Cassidy to anger when his father is insulted to a kind of cool determination. Well, at this point, Dierenique calls for Star. All father, perhaps he needn't die just yet. A power like his... It is over, Star. Your time is up. He has guessed the aim of Star's conspiracy to replace the Messiah with Jesse. You are a politician. I am a believer. Your weapon? Star hands him his gun. Two knives. A circle. What is this shit? Our custom. Derenique declares a trial by combat between Jesse and Star. Star serving as the champion of the Grail. 
The loser dies. The winner walks away. Begin. Yeah, he's sort of giving Jesse exactly what he wants at this point. The chance to kick Star's ass? Yes, exactly. Yeah, but there is, of course, no way that Star comes out of this fight ahead since his conspiracy depends on having Jesse. Bullshit. The winner's a fucking dead man, too. You have to listen to me. Ain't gonna be needing this. <laughs> yeah, Jesse just tosses the knife away, unconcerned that Star will still have one. Yeah, and then he just kicks Star's ass for the- threatening Tulip way back at the sex party in around issue 13. Way I hear it, you're the shit heel likes to point a pistol at a girl and say you're gonna shoot her face off. Shouldn't have done that. Star keeps trying to get a word in to talk to Jesse about the need to basically to team up and handle Derenique together. But Jesse's too pissed off, and also with some goading from Derenique, he continues to try and fight Star, leading Star to pick his knife back up and give Jesse a scar on the side of his face. And Jesse responds by grabbing the bandage covering the wound on Star's ear from when Tulip shot him way back in the sex party, and rips it off. So, while Jesse and Star continue to have a somewhat humorously one-sided fight in the background, Marseille is answering a call in the foreground. Right, there is an intruder, and then the walkie goes dead. And once again, just as when they heard about the boat, Marseille doesn't seem too concerned about this news. He's more focused on what's happening to his boss. Now, Jesse throws Star out of a window, and they crash down into the gardens, where we find Paul, the 94-year-old gardener, and the Messiah hanging out. The Messiah is about to chug a bottle of poison. He claims to have changed it into wine. This is basically just a reminder that the child is underfoot, which will come up in the next couple of issues. Yeah, underfoot and seriously impaired. Right. Unless he really did change it to wine. I guess we don't know. Oh, I, I, I presume that he proceeds to drink that bottle and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, or Jesse sort of accidentally saves his life here by knocking Hair Star down basically on top of him. Now, at this point, Star basically realizes that he can't fight Jesse, but that Jesse is going to keep chasing him wherever he goes, so he just starts running for the big plot reveals. Yeah, meanwhile... Dieronique orders his soldiers to go bring them back. They run right into cell 99. Star lights a torch, and Jesse gets his first look at the inhabitant of the cell. Yeah, meanwhile, some soldiers who are uh, chasing after them turn behind and notice something behind them. Who in Jesus' name is that? Is that, is that what I think it is? Yes. Is it alive? Oh, yes. It is alive. It is real. It can look at a man and see his soul and know his every secret. Custer, that fat gob of shit back there has the grail at his disposal, the most powerful organization in the world, and he could throw it away on some fucking stupid legend. But this creature and its power are real, and so is yours. And that is why I brought you here. Their conversation is interrupted by gunfire, and we get a panel of the action going on above ground, as a whole bunch of Grail dudes are shot dead. Yeah, it's a real massacre going on here. And Jesse says, I know them guns. What? Fuck! Custer! Custer, it's waking up! But somebody new has entered the cell. Somebody in a long trench coat and cowboy hat. Well, preacher, just how fast do you reckon you can preach? 
That's pretty fucking badass. That is, of course, the Saint of Killers. Yep, here he is. And his reveal is the last page of issue 22. That brings us to Preacher number 23. And the cover of this issue, we have a demon and an angel roiling in lava. Is that what they're doing? Well, or possibly fucking in lava. <laughs> I thought they were screwing, and I thought that lava had been conveniently inserted to cover up the naughty bits. Yeah, it's definitely not clear in any way that they're screwing. I don't know if you can have two people fucking on the cover of a comic book. (laughs) (laughs) I know here that... Not even in Japan. (laughs) I know here that for whatever reason, Glenn Fabry's vision of Genesis's demonic mother is much nastier and uglier than the way that Steve Dillon draws her. Well, yeah, Fabry sort of draws everybody more hardcore heavy metal than Steve Dillon does. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so we pick up right where we left off uh, with the confrontation between the saint and Jesse in the cell. I'm betting I can clear a holster for your words at the breeze, preacher. First twitch I see, that's what I'm going to do. So Jesse's in a bit of a tight spot. Can't use this word of God if he can't speak. No one ever scorned me like you did, boy. I've been searching way too hard not to take my time watching you sweat. Ain't no pleasure in it. Ain't what's right. But it's sure as hell how this thing has to end. Now, Star has no idea who this is. Jesus Christ, that voice. Who is he? He is the saint of killers. The inhabitant really sounded like Derenique, but it wasn't. (laughs) It's the inhabitant of Cell 99 answering Star's question. Right, so Jesse's sort of out in the hallway. Star is hiding in the cell. And the inhabitant, of course, knows everything about the saint and is able to fill him in on some details. Right, he says Jesse has to live, and the angel has a plan, a plan for Star to uh, stop the saint from killing Jesse. And as he informs Star of the plan, we go back above ground, where the Masada guards are basically reporting to Derenique that they have been completely unable to stop the saint of killers. He can't be. All father, I swear to you, we couldn't kill him. We poured bullets into him, and he stood and took it. And killed a dozen men. He followed Star, too. He's down there now. Take him. But rush him. Swamp his guns with your bodies. Sacrifice as many as it takes. And then bring Star and Custer to me. Alive. Before the saint can execute Jesse, Star enters the scene with a message. If you shoot Custer, you'll never know who killed your family. Really nice facial expressions by Steve Dillon on this page. Star is obviously completely terrified being held at gunpoint by the saint. Yes, and the saint, when he hears this, becomes surprised while still very pissed off. Which brings all three of them inside the cell where we finally get the reveal of the inhabitant of cell 99. Yeah, this is the first full reveal, but issue 19 made it pretty clear. That was when we saw him fall in the first place. And be intercepted by the U.S. government. Right. This is an angel. A Seraphi angel, to be specific. And a couple of issues back, we saw him fall from heaven and be discovered by a couple of F-14s. Well met, O saint of... Just say your damn peace. Your wife and child, there is much you don't know. Fever took him. Been gone these hundred years or more. No. No, that is merely what you saw. There is more... This is one of the greatest secrets kept in all of paradise. 
To us, the host, it was only rumored that more lay behind your family's deaths, O oh saint. But Jesse Custer knows the truth. Now, Jesse, for his part, has no idea that he knows any such thing. You know, but you don't remember. The angel goes on to explain that the being fused with Jesse, Genesis, the half-angelic, half-demonic, godlike creature that gives him the word of God power, knows everything that has ever transpired in heaven. Yeah, and sometimes Jesse gets flashes of things that he shouldn't know. And there's sort of an implication here that maybe John Wayne giving him information is actually Genesis. Right, yeah. So Jesse is known to have conversations with a mental image of the Duke, John Wayne, and at times that figure has told him things he couldn't possibly have known. So as the angel describes how sometimes Genesis will speak to him, sometimes Genesis will unlock knowledge he shouldn't have, Jesse recalls being told about the saint by John Wayne back in, God, issue number two? Yeah, yeah, it was a while back. But, so that is the explanation of John Wayne that you've been waiting for. All right. I wasn't entirely sure that was the explanation. when I Even when I read it, I thought maybe there was a little more to it. Well, and and there may yet be. Okay, we'll have to read on. So, Jesse doesn't have the information yet, but the angel can give him some tutelage, basically, in how to reach the information held within Genesis. You tell me what I got to know, preacher. This thing between us is settled. That right there is the most I ever offered a living soul. Done. Star points out that Derenique's troops are about to rush the place, and so the saint agrees to hold them off. Well, Jesse hears what he needs to from the angel. I got your word on this? You reckon it's worth something, boy? I sure as hell know you keep your promises, but yeah, I reckon so. Then you got it. Don't need yours. Cross me. You know what happens. I'll be seeing you, preacher. And I like Star's description of the saint as the saint walks out here. Fucking bastard! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... Jesse turns back to the angel, and with characteristic frankness, you're its daddy, ain't you? That's right, the angel is Genesis's father. And in order to explain how to access Genesis, the angel feels he has to tell the whole story of how Genesis came to be. Now, before he tells Jesse anything, the angel wants Jesse's guarantee that he's going to get him out of there, save him from the grail. And Jesse says no. No deal, boy. Fess up voluntarily, then we'll see. Basically, Jesse trusts the saint to be the saint, but he doesn't trust angels at all. The angel lowers his head, knowing he's lost this negotiation, and then enters his story. Hers was the beauty of blades in an alley. I really like that line. It's so, like, I don't know, it's just poetic enough, but also, like, sort of bad poetry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just overwrought enough. I like it. I would probably enjoy whatever uh, Scott Lynch novel I read that in. So, the angel explains that this particular demon was sort of a temptress. Yeah, she tempts all the humans, and when lust conquered love, when they broke God's law, they were hers. So it looks like basically she's guarding the borders of hell and he's guarding the edges of heaven and they see each other at work. Yeah, I also like how here how he says that he's watching her dance in the thermals of perdition. <laughs> That's cool. 
basically, without much more ado, they fly up to each other and screw. Our wills were not our own. It was a tornado, a hurricane, a tsunami crashing down upon a tower of rock. Our juices fell like rain on the inferno. Hey! How much more of this horse shit do I gotta listen to? We ain't got time for a goddamn poetry recital, and your juices fell like rain on the inferno? The fuck is that, from the letter you wrote to Penthouse? But... You fucked her, she got pregnant, they caught ya. I know this part, get to the goddamn point. I love Jesse. Yeah, that's... That's some hilarious dialogue. Now the next page is Hairstar muttering shit as he notices a stream of blood is flowing down the stairs and towards the door of cell 99. Yeah, and then we get a full page of the saint massacring the Grail army. Yeah, and there's just a mountain of bodies in front of him already. Give him hell, one of the officers is instructing. Yeah. Give me all the hell you got to spare. The angel continues his tale. He tells Jesse that Genesis should never have happened. Good and evil are never supposed to mix. It's unnatural. A freak, just as our actions were freakish when we coupled against the order of things. Now, he basically had a plan to deal with the situation. Yeah, he was going to kill her. Yeah, kill the mother and child both. Could we flee together, she asked. Could we hide the child? Did I have any kind of plan? And as he, in flashback, grabs her throat, I did. What a what jerk. A, yeah, what a jerk. But he was prevented from infanticide by the arrival of all the Seraphi. And then very shortly, by the birth of Genesis. Right. Just at the worst moment, the Seraphi catch them, and Genesis chooses that moment to be born. And this is a totally wordless page of some fairly cosmic or at least ethereal art of Genesis being born. And its screams are like bolts of lightning. There's an enormous blast of energy. It's unclear if the birth kills the mother, but all of the Seraphi are surrounded by this light, and then we see the face of Genesis. Have we seen this before? The face of Genesis? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it was actually the cover of an earlier issue. So Genesis appears as a screaming giant baby face. Right. Now, he tried to warn the other angels, he says. He knew that with all that power, Genesis would go seeking out the one thing it didn't have, which was a will. Right, so it would seek out a mortal mind. But the angels ignored him and cast him out of heaven. And that's where we catch up with him, where we've seen him before, streaking past the F-14. The angel confirms that Star captured him and tortured him for information, and that he is the Grail's inside man in heaven, the spy that Hilo and DeBlanc were worried about way back in Preacher number three. Yeah, that's right. Which you probably would have figured out by now, reading along. Right, the Grail has some way of getting inside information about what only angels should know, and this, it turns out, is it. Meanwhile, Star is back in touch with Marseille, who has not been killed, as I thought he had, by the Saint of Killers. Hold on a second. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's it. Here it is on uh, page 262 in the trade. The first guy getting killed by by the Saint, or it's the first fight scene with the Saint. I was pretty sure that Marseille was killed in this fight scene, but he's not. And in fact, we can see him kind of moving through the scene unharmed, right? 
Yeah, but we see someone catch a bullet between the ears. And afterwards, Hairstar shouts, Marseille, into the walkie-talkie. But that wasn't actually Marseille. Okay, so Star is on the walkie with Marseille, and he's got a plan to get out of there. And he needs a helicopter. Meanwhile, Allfather, Allfather, it's butchery down there. We can't move him. You cannot? Why can you not? Our casualties per Samson team are total. Our dead are piled ten high in front of him. We're sending men down there to die for nothing. No weapon we've got can make a mark on him. His aim's perfect, even with our troopers hanging from his arms. Allfather, I'm requesting permission to call off the next attack. Oh no, oh no. Instead you will lead it. Yeah, Dieronique then instructs the men of the Grail. He gives a speech about all the incalculable odds that they've fought in the past in order to maintain and protect the Grail's mission. And then he instructs them, Drown him in your blood. As Dieronique said earlier, Hairstar is a politician. He's a believer. And I think I pointed this out in a past episode, but part of Dieronique's firm belief is an ironclad belief in himself. Mm-hmm. Just a, a huge amount of self-importance, which is what allows him to be such a total bastard. Okay. So, I mean, I guess my question is, do you think he believes that sending wave after wave of guys is eventually going to accomplish something? Or do you think that he's just so ruthless and so unwilling to back down that he's going to do it? Well, I think that he believes that win or lose, whether they actually accomplish something or whether they just buy time for him to escape with the child, either way, God's plan will have been accomplished. So he doesn't question himself or any of his decisions one bit Mm -hmm. because he's certain that just by, basically, just by following his first impulse, God's plan will will happen. And we see that he's incredibly ruthless here, as whether or not it will be successful, he has no problem throwing hundreds of lives at this problem. Right. However, there is a flaw in his calculation, as Marseille shouts, Derenique! And he's got the child with a gun to his head. And he calls the child an it here, which is really not cool at all. I mean, the child is not a plausible world leader, but he's still a human being. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I think earlier in this issue, or no, I guess it was the last one, Hair Star referred to him as a fucking retard. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, again, just because he's not in possession of his mental faculties doesn't mean that he's not worthy of compassion. Right. Now, we have seen, this would have been in 21, I think, the scene where Marseille met the child for the first time, and basically the depth of the contempt that Star and Marseille have for him. Right. Yeah, that's true. He he actually went so far as to say uh, that meeting the child was the reason that he would never question Herr Star ever again. Right. Now, back in Cell 99, the angel continues to address Jesse. The angel tells him to use older ways from older times to bring forth Genesis. You must elevate the spirit, forget the flesh. Look to your homeland, Custer, to the first Americans, the Navajo, the Hopi. Jack Daniels? Okay, is that a racist joke? Uh, Is the joke that getting drunk is an older way from an older time? I just thought he was saying that Jack Daniels is an older American. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> he is. I don't know. Well, the angel mentions God, and that's Jesse's cue to mention that God is already running scared from Genesis. He's already abandoned the throne of heaven. The angel does not take this news well. But, but don't you realize? If he's on earth, then he can hear me. He can find me. No! God is coming! God is coming! God is here! And with that, we have the end of issue number 23. Yeah, so, was a three-way melee, and we're adding a new side, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Well, just like when he appeared when the SWAT team was getting ready to, to fight Jesse, or when he made his presence felt in the fight between Jesse and Grandma, God doesn't really represent a side unto himself. He just sort of provides tactical interference. <laughs> but he's not going to fight, that's true. But he comes into this situation with his own agenda. Right. So, Preacher number 24, and Justice for All. Do you want to talk about this cover? Yeah, we have Star grinning, his hands completely covered in blood. Yeah, and this isn't really representative of any scene that we're going to see in this issue. It's thematically representative. You think so? But we will get to that. All right. In any case, he's certainly having a good time. We've never really seen Star this happy, except for that one time when he said he was feeling great. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> and that didn't last very long. So issue 24 opens on Cassidy. He is laying there with one arm taken off by gunfire in a pool of blood. Beast. Beast. Wake, beast. Huh? And know me. Cassidy is awakened here by a voice and a presence that casts an incredibly bright light over the scene. And he looks up to see that Frankie the eunuch is stopped in time. Oh, fuck. It's God. So this is the first time we've seen Cassidy since issue 21. First scene with Cassidy in it that we're covering in this episode. There was a torture scene in number 22, but we didn't actually get a look at Cassidy. At oh yeah, that's right. He, he just screamed. So God has a message that he wants Cassidy to deliver. He says that he could destroy Jesse, but he wants to be merciful. And the message is, give up the search. Yeah, and now Cassidy here is not having it. <laughs> Hey, just a fucking minute. Have you seen the fucking state of me? Are you trying to tell me you're going to fuck off and leave me to that space cadet whore of a wop up there? What kind of fucking loving god are you? You deserve it. You are a blood-drinking thing that crawls in the night. You are lower than the worst scum on the surface of the earth. I name you Beast. God, also not having it. <laughs> Yeah, so I like the line here. He says, I told him I could destroy him. He is ever at my mercy. And yet, I am a loving God. Yeah, I, uh, I wrote down that. I wrote that down too. He is ever at my mercy. And he goes on to explain that he has crossed Jesse's path twice. A third time will be his undoing. Meanwhile, back in cell 99, will you quit screaming? The angel says that God is here for him to destroy him, that Jesse led him here, and basically that God will have his vengeance for the angel helping Jesse in his search. Good! Now shut up! 
<laughs> right. Now, Jesse has been searching all over America for God and is really just delighted for the chance to finally meet him. Yeah, but instead he decides to skip it and go after Cassidy. He can wait his goddamn turn. He ain't even the reason I came here. And that brings us back to the hostage situation. Marseille demands safe passage to the helicopter, and Derenique agrees in the most emphatic terms. Take no chances with the life of our savior. Should that child receive a single graze, I will see every man in Masada dead on the rack. He really is a big fan of mass murder. Yeah, he is. But, again, he he's not kidding when he puts the child's life paramount above everything else. Yeah. And meanwhile, despite the hostage situation, this doesn't slow the futile assault on the Saint of Killers. Yeah, once again, a new squad of men is sent down. They see a stack of bodies piled up to the ceiling and have only a second to notice that before the Saint of Killers resumes firing. Yeah, now this is a sort of typical Garth Ennis black comedy in that he's sort of making a joke of the deaths of all these men, but at the same time, he's really making you feel the futility of it. And, you know, it, it does make you angry at uh, Dieronique and at the Saint of Killers. Yeah, even though these are the bad guys, this is a horrifying sequence. Well, even though that these are the bad guys, and even though sometimes the violence against them is drawn in such a way as to be comedic. Mm -hmm. Darkly comedic. Like, we see, you know, goofy looks on guys' faces as they get fatally shot. Right, right. So, Jesse catches up with Star, who's in an elevator. Star explains that the elevator goes up to the helicopter pad or down to a tunnel that they can use to escape. You and I are going up. Says who? Says the bomb. Right. Like any good villain base, the Grail's headquarters at Masada has a self-destruct mechanism, and Star has pushed it. They have about 20 minutes before the whole place blows up. You're going to take out the Grail? Bullshit! This case contains my personal effects and plans, Custer. Everything I intend to accomplish for the future of our world is contained here. As far as I am concerned, this is the Grail. Listen, asshole! You listen! Star explains that he wanted to bring Custer here to show him the angel, to impress upon him that this power is real. So you would know that I am privy to the secrets of heaven itself. God is gone. The afterlife is as much a shambles as any of the worthless governments on earth. Now, more than ever, there must be order. And you and I together will fulfill the prophecy of the Grail and give this world the order that it needs. Yeah, Jesse isn't interested. He says he's just here to fetch his buddy Cassidy. And as he protests, we see that Herr Star is holding a knife behind his back. Right, he almost gets Jesse in a hole with the knife, and then Jesse kicks him in the nuts. Yeah, and turns out pulling the knife on Jesse was a bad idea. Jesse seems to catch it in midair, actually. Uh, yeah, it's flying through the air in one panel, and Jesse is holding it in the next. So, good move. Yeah, Jesse's pissed off here. I'm through with you, you cock-sucking kraut prick. Fuck you. Fuck your grail, and fuck your goddamn order. Where's Cass? He asks as he tortures Hair Star by cutting a line down his scalp. Right, now, at this point, at this point the scene turns suddenly to comedy as 
The briefcase has spilled open, and Jesse sees, well, Hairstar's strap-on dildo has fallen to the floor of the elevator. He is distracted by it just long enough for Star to get in the elevator and get gone. <laughs> what kind of fucking... Now, I, I thought this was this was kind of funny because it's it's more innocent times, you know, when this comic book was written. As much as this comic book isn't innocent at all, it takes Jesse a second to realize what the dildo is. And I feel like you see so many dildos on TV these <laughs> days that, you know, it wouldn't take anyone... It wouldn't take anyone a second to realize what a dildo is anymore. Right, Jesse is just a country boy. And there's that contrast again between, like... I'm gonna use I'm gonna use the word depraved, but understand that that's my my estimation of the comics judgment between depraved sex and sort of good, clean, wholesome fun. Right, Jesse is basically not into kink at all. Right, and so he picks it up, looks at it, and then goes "fuck" and drops it. <laughs> right, during which time Star has gotten away. But Star did mention that three levels down, via the same elevator, is where Cassidy can be found. Yeah. He tries to call Star to come back using the word of God, but Star has his hands over his ears. Meanwhile, in cell 99, the angel is screaming for mercy as God passes judgment on him. You told him everything. Because of you, I have to flee, to hide, to skulk. Me. I name you Betrayer. And the angel catches a flame, and we... Hear his scream from outside the door of the cell. All father, all father, someone's triggered the bomb. We've barely got ten minutes. Darnie realizes that this is Star's doing and orders the evacuation of himself and the child. A pity there is only one helicopter, Captain. You and five men, Captain, carry me. And there's some more of his trademark self-importance. Right, so... Everybody's running around looking for the child who Marseille is sort of in hiding with here. And as he's distracted looking at all of this panic, Humper Dumper Dido! As he punches Marseille in the face and gets away. Sermon on the Mount! Humper Dido! Marseille goes chasing after the child while Star emerges from a trapdoor behind the helicopter. They manage to get Derenique on his back on the floor of the chopper. Yeah, one of the men is commenting, Star must be out of his mind, and the Aranique responds that there's no one more sane. Star knows the truth, Captain. The Grail was always more than just Masada. The helicopter pilot receives orders to get the chopper ready but wait for the child, but then he receives new orders. Good news, Sonny. You're cleared for takeoff. Star says, holding a gun on him. Marseille manages to catch the child as the helicopter takes off. But he may be too late because some of the other Masada men have spotted him. Meanwhile in the air, her star, she can't take the weight. She won't have to. Give it another 50 feet and then bank left. We must land. We must land. We've forgotten the child. Answer me. Why don't you answer me? Blessed. Blessed. Blessed is all father star. Star says with a maniacal grin on his face. And as the helicopter banks left, Allfather Derenique slips out of it. Yeah, he uh, tumbles out the side of the helicopter and falls 
directly onto Marseille and the child. Humperdido, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Great. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jesse bursts into Cassidy's cell, but Frankie the eunuch is ready with the Enfield pointed at him. Freeze, motherfucker. First word out of your mouth, I swear to fucking God you're dead before the second. I know you, motherfucker. Mr. Starr told me you were coming for this piece of shit. I know what you can do. One fucking word, motherfucker. One word. Miss. Fuck! <laughs> and he does. He does indeed fire, as he promised to, but he does indeed miss. And Jesse punches him in the face, knocks him over the edge of the cell. He falls into the pit where Cassidy has been kept. Seems to break his neck here in the fall. Right. He seems to be paralyzed, but not killed. How are you? And it's time for Cassidy to get some sweet revenge. And some sweet, sweet blood. Yeah. I feel good about that. <laughs> I mean, Frankie the Eunuch was always kind of a comic figure, in as much as he was a comic figure who engaged in some really chilling violence. Well, I mean, yeah, we've we've definitely been uh, been feeling bad for this horrible situation Cassidy has been in yeah. for the last several issues, and so it's it's a relief to see him escape it. Yeah, and, and even though Frankie the Eunuch is funny, we don't really mind seeing some bad stuff happen to him. Yeah, now, speaking of comedically bad endings, we can see here that Allfather Aranique has landed on Marseille and the child in a huge splash of blood. The Masada troops are basically speechless, except for one who sums up the situation concisely. We're fucked. Yeah, the bomb goes off, and does it seem to you like that here, like the saint of killers is buried in the rubble? Yeah, that was my read. He's probably not killed, but he's probably going to be a few months before he can get up to much. But one person who did escape the blast is somehow Paul. Right, so did he just see that things went south and start making his way out to the hills? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he just happened to be out of town on an errand or something. Although we saw him earlier. Yeah, he was here not long ago when he was watching this child drink poison. Right. <laughs> but his response also sums it up. Sacre bleu! Jesse pulls Cassidy from the pit and they start to make their painful way down the escape tunnel as the base explodes around them. Well, here's another fine mess you've gotten me into, says Cassidy. That is a reference to their earlier conversation about Laurel and Hardy. Mm-hmm. Nice. Cassidy recaps his conversation with God. You're to stop socializing with people like me. That a fact. So he says, knocking around with beasts against the law of God, apparently. Well, he can shove his law up his ass. Just one word of it says I can't stand by my friend. And that's, you know, that's Preacher, right? The law of God doesn't really concern Jesse so much as just being a good guy to other people. It's sort of a secular humanist moment. Right. He has his own code of honor, and it has very little to do with traditional Judeo-Christian morality. Or perhaps you could say that it has a strange, a strange relationship to traditional Judeo-Christian morality. Right. He's applying here the values that he learned from his father. It's all about human connection to him. Right, and we get the title page is the final page of the issue as Jesse and Cassidy 
emerge from the tunnel with the burning Masada behind them. Again, we've been following this arc for a long time. It's nice to see a suitably dramatic close to it. Yeah, a very satisfying issue. Yeah, I love the pace in this issue. Lots of stuff happening, but it's all clearly told, even though it has enough speed to maintain this sort of hectic, comedic panic. Right? Yeah, definitely. And it cuts back and forth at such a great pace between the different stories. Very deftly handled. Yeah, Garth Ennis, in addition to hilariously vulgar dialogue, he has a real talent for juggling multiple plot threads, and I think that that's on display in this issue once again. And reinforced by Steve Dillon's ability to carry off action using not a lot of dialogue. Yeah, that's right. He's got a real gift for the silent action page. Yeah, so Star has escaped. There are still confrontations that need to take place in the future, but for now, this is a, a very satisfying end to this story arc. Right, so this is Preacher in its biggest, most cinematic action movie mode, and it's going to ramp down for a while after this, I think. Yeah, that's right. It's nice to know that this series can sort of reach this height of epic action, but it can also handle more down-to-earth moments. Yeah, that's true. And there is another big, huge, action-packed set piece coming at us before, I guess, what you'd call the midpoint of the, of the series, but that's uh, going to be a little while. Last week on The Approach, we talked about the importance of character work going into a sequence like this, and it really shows the way that Jesse and Star and Cassidy react to one another is something that we can easily predict and understand because of the time that we've had to get to know these characters. Yeah, and it's also important when you're juggling all these plot threads the way that this issue does that you kind of understand why everyone behaves the way that they do. This is something that lesser comic books try to pull off all the time. You know, you see just little snippets of what people are doing and you're supposed to understand what their intentions are. And sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Yeah, so that confrontation in the elevator between Jesse and her star really works because we've had a few issues to get to know Star and to know what he wants out of this. And we get to see there how Jesse reacts to it, which is that he's not interested in the politics and he's not interested in the mythology. He wants to save his friend. Yeah, he even passes up his chance to meet God. Right. Although it's unclear how much that was his intention to pass it up. I feel like he wanted to make his way back there, but things ended up taking longer than he was prepared for. I want to mention, I think I might have brought this up on the podcast before. I know I definitely talked about it on our Twitter feed, but this issue really reminds me of the latest issue of Jimmy's Bastards, okay, which is a James Bond parody comic book written by Garth Ennis that's running right now. And it is also, it does a fantastic job of that sort of big cinematic action storyline where you understand all the characters well enough to understand what everyone's doing and why. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, now it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic book. This week, Sean is going to be reading The Filth, number one. By Grant Morrison, which I think I mentioned last week, right? That's right. 
We talked about that in regard to the filth as a slang for British cops. Right. Which are probably very nice people, and it's not a nice way to refer to them. <laughs> well, that, that is a, a meaning, an entendre, that will come back, as you'll see. All right. Okay, that was The Filth, number one, written by Grant Morrison, pencils by Chris Weston, inks by Gary Erskine, and colors by Matt Hollingsworth. Matt Hollingsworth? Oh, that's the same guy who colored the Preacher issues we just read. Sure is. He's a great guy. Well, it's not a great comic book. <laughs> Why do you say that? I did not like it, but I can understand how some people might like it. Can you elaborate on that? No. <laughs> no I, I, I will. Um, you know, it's... You would probably say try not to judge it solely on the basis of the fact that it's Grant Morrison, but everything that's Grant Morrison is so thoroughly Grant Morrison, and so not anything else. <laughs> it, it's hard to not notice. So we've got this, this old man, and we spend a lot of time on this old man, and I guess the filth means, like, police, but it also means pornography. Right. The comic is totally loaded with porn. Well, I mean, the storyline is totally loaded with porn. It's not like the pages. It's not like the pages of the comic book themselves are actually pornographic. Uh, most of them are not. This old guy, he is watched by surveillance for quite a long time as he embarrasses himself buying porn and goes back to his apartment and jerks off at the porn and uh, and he's got a cat and uh, he's got a job that he doesn't really like and then this woman appears in his office and it no not his office his shower and <laughs> don't it, get those two yeah confused. it's really important <laughs> and it turns out that he's some kind of time cop and the identity that he's been living is just something they injected in him and it, like it literally like runs out his nose and he's he's back to being slave to time cop and they jump in their time machine which has teeth on the back of it which was okay but there's this whole episode where like his identity is supposed to have left him but he still cares about that cat Right. And then and then we find out that something else completely unrelated and incomprehensible is going on involving some rich assholes, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that this comic book contained kind of the best of Grant Morrison and the worst of Grant Morrison. Okay. You know, it's funny. At least it has funny parts. You mentioned the scene where he's embarrassed trying to buy the porn. Right. <laughs> Why don't you want your change? Right. <laughs> you know, good stuff like that. It has sort of interesting, bizarre sci-fi ideas. I yeah. really like the idea that he's sort of retired in an alternate personality. It's kind of a neat idea. It's strange, but okay. And then we get like the really rapey guy who is like selling. He's like he's like pimping somebody out to an old pervert, and it turns out that what he's pimping out is Planet Earth. Okay, I guess that could be what was happening in those pages. <laughs> well, he had said that he had two billion victims, and then we saw the Earth with a flaming person on it. There are more than two billion people on the Earth, and flaming people are not big enough to be seen from space. Well, so there's something else going on. <laughs> well, that was that was my read of what was happening in that uh, in that scene. Yeah, you know, I think that the intro to the. I think this is either the final crisis TPB or the first Batman and Robin trade describes Grant Morrison as fearlessly inventive. And I think that's one way of putting it. I tend to think that he likes to throw a lot of ideas at the wall and doesn't really like to delve into them too deeply. 
<laughs> you you think he his invention could do with a little more fear? <laughs> I think he has, you know, he comes up with cool ideas, or at least he comes up with cool linguistic ways to refer to them. They just don't get the kind of exploration that would make for really good sci-fi in his books, is the way that I often feel about it after reading one. Well, I think if you go back to, like, New X-Men, for instance, okay. which is my go-to example of a Grant Morrison comic, because, you know, I've read the entire run you know, multiple times. Yeah. So it it has, it does have things that kind of, you never quite figure them out and they sort of get left by the wayside. It also has really interesting, flavorful concepts that became a part of the X-Men universe for many years to come after that. Things like the Stepford Cuckoos and the world. Right, right. Phantom X and his inability to conceive of anything bigger than Phantom X? <laughs> well, Phantom X is sort of a parody of Deadpool, I think. Yes. Phantom X is deliberately the kind of character who someone would introduce who's just a total badass with all kinds of powers who dresses like that. <laughs> right. Yeah, and he turns out to be kind of pathetic. Yeah. Well, uh, what was the other? Uh, John Sublime, which is a, a living virus or fungus of some kind that manages to get itself sold as a drug so it can inhabit a large swath of the Earth's population. Yeah, and the U-Men. I don't know anything about the U-Men. Well, <laughs> the, the less you know, the better. <laughs> Read the book, man. Okay, okay. I, I think that this comic had some dialogue, which it feels like Morrison felt like this dialogue had to be in a comic book somewhere, God damn it. <laughs> well, what do you mean? And so, and so I want to call out, he's the world's richest and most perverted man, you know? <laughs> Which is bullshit. The world's richest man is therefore the most trustworthy one. Right. <laughs> That's That stands to reason. Uh, I like that a character is referred to by another character as sexy Nobel Prize winning doctor. <laughs> and of course, the immortal fibers in the toupee will shield you from electromagnetic attack. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, that's... See, again, they both so wear, like, priceless. purple and green hair so that they are shielded from electromagnetic attack. <laughs> yeah, it makes them all fucking future man. At this point, we have no idea what kind of electromagnetic attack might occur. I forgot to mention the Black Bug Room. Oh, the Black Bug Room. Well, don't get me started on Moomadry, though. <laughs> Actually, the, the Moomadry is sort of... The idea of, like, the personality running out his nose sort of reminded me of Moomadry. What's a Mooma Dry? It's not well explained. <laughs> All right, well, so will you be back for more of the filth number two? Probably not, honestly. <laughs> All right, well, uh, there you have it. <laughs> In our next Preacher episode, we're going to be taking a trip down memory lane into Cassidy's past. But first, join us in a little less than a week as the Sandman attends a family reunion. See you then. Hey, if you like our show, check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got four episodes plus show notes on every episode. You can get in touch with us on Twitter. That's at vertiguys. Or on email, vertiguys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or if you just want to chat about comic books. If you want to chat about comic book podcasts, hey, you could write us a review on iTunes. I hope you're liking and subscribing. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.